Welcome to Simplify. I'm Ben Schumann-Stoller. And I'm Caitlin Schiller. Simplify is for anybody who's taken a close look at their habits, their happiness, their relationships, or their health, and thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. In today's episode, Caitlin talks to Ryan Holiday and, well, how would you introduce him, actually? All right, so he's an author. You may know him from Trust Me, I'm Lying or The Obstacle is the Way. Isn't he best known as a marketer and strategist, but also as kind of like a shitster provocateur? <laughs> well, he certainly associates himself with figures who've kicked up controversy, like Tucker Max and American Apparel. But more recently, he's become a bringer of philosophy to the masses, which is quite a departure. Right. This is where it gets really interesting. He, he advocates stoicism. And for anyone who doesn't know, classically, stoicism was about prioritizing self-control, fortitude, and, and overcoming any destructive emotion. It's basically logic over emotion. Yeah. But nowadays, there's like this modern strain of stoicism that he's been a big part of bringing to the fore. And that focuses on being aware of what could be blocking you, overcoming obstacles. And it requires a certain amount of, I think, self-awareness and, and wisdom. Yeah, lots of lots of big questions here. Yeah. We want to also remind you guys that you can tweet at us. Uh, I'm at Bisto, B-S-T-O, and you're at... At Caitlin Schiller. Cool. Yeah, that'll be fun. Oh, and don't forget to stick around after the interview. We'll make a book list for anybody who wants to go deeper into what we talk about in this episode. All right, then. Let's get the tape rolling. Here's Caitlin Schiller and Ryan Holiday. So thank you for taking the time to, to talk today. I'm, I've been really looking forward to this. Um, yeah, I'm excited. Great. Could you do me a favor and introduce yourself? Yep. My name's Ryan Holiday. Um, I'm an author and media strategist. I've written six books uh, on topics from media manipulation to ancient philosophy, and I live in Austin, Texas. Cool. Okay. Can you talk to me a little bit about how media manipulation and ancient philosophy work together? How do you bring those two things together if you do? I'm not sure that I do or that one one could. Um, as a writer, you know, my my job is to tackle the topics that 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 interest me, that are fascinating, and that I that I think are relevant in today's time. So mm-hmm. my my first book was an expose of sort of how the media system works. Um, sort of a, a bit of a tell-all as well, um, ha- having worked with a number of very controversial clients over the years. Um, when I when I wrote the book in 2011 and 2012, I sort of thought, you know, this is a sort of a, a fun, if not alarming, side of the internet. And then my next book was about uh, ancient philosophy, specifically Stoic philosophy, which was just something I was also very personally interested in and, and and had some personal experience with. So the, the, the books don't necessarily overlap, although I would argue that uh, Stoicism, which is a philosophy about sort of inner discipline and clarity and sort of peace within the sort of chaos of the world around you, um, would be a very relevant philosophy in a time of manipulation and dysfunction and noise. I think that's true. Who is your audience? Yeah, that that's always a, a tough question. As a as a writer, you want to say as many people as possible, or you want to say people like me. Um, I, I I try to go into every book with a very specific audience in mind. Mm-hmm. But for instance, if you're writing a book 
and you write it one way and it alienates another group of people, it doesn't matter how popular it gets, um, you're never going to reach them. So um, you, you have to know who a book is for. And I think you also want to think about, you know, who is a book not for, um, mm. which is something not enough people do with their work. That's kind of a, a a controversial tactic. You, it seems like you do you like controversy. I don't want to. I don't want to put. Um, I don't. I don't want to peg this on you. But it seems like it's uh, it's something that you sort of enjoy. You work with Tucker Max. Um, you've been involved with American Apparel. Is controversy a good strategy? Because it seems like stirring it up is is something that you either enjoy doing or have a very high tolerance for doing. It's probably a, a little bit of both. I mean, you know. Controversy as it seemingly for most people has this overwhelmingly negative connotation, whereas like provocative can sort of be on both sides. I, what I'm trying to do is generate discussion with my work because I think that's the whole point. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not generating a discussion, chances are you're not interacting and reaching people the way that you want to. And so what what I like to do is to is to take some, you know, sacred cow or to take some poorly understood but generally held assumption. And I like to challenge it. And I think that's a great way to 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 break through to people. And and also uh, on the marketing side, it's a great way to get people to hear about something. Yeah, finding that niche and working it in a in a, in a novel way. Yes. Actually, one one other note on on controversy is is I think if you know who you're making this work for and you know who it's not for, it allows you to sort of play to one base and sort of deliberately tweak or provoke the other base. So so for instance, knowing that I wrote these books, my philosophy books, um, with the idea that that philosophy has been made needlessly elite or obscure, or um, it's sort of almost got a fundamentalism to it, knowing that I'm not writing for that audience allows me to not get upset if that audience doesn't like my work. So if if some at, you know professor of some obscure school of philosophy says, you know, what Ryan is doing is is bastardizing this philosophy, he's forgetting this, this, and this, or you know, it's much more complicated than that. Um, good. I don't like what you do and I don't <laughs> want to reach you. Uh -huh. So the fact that you're telling me that I didn't do it your way is confirmation to me that I probably got cl at least close to what I was trying to do. And and this is true for a lot of things, you know, um, and, and not to make this political, but when Donald Trump pisses off people who are not part of his base, that means he's probably done something that his base actually likes. And so mm. I'm not saying that that's a, a general strategy that everyone should do all the time or that mm. that's even what I'm trying to do. But when you know who your audience is and who your, who maybe we'll call them your not audience is, it, it's not going to break your heart that someone who is never going to be a fan of what you're doing is telling you that they're not a fan of what you're doing. Yeah, I think that's that's a very true observation. It's it takes a lot of fortitude though to decide that that's okay with you. How did you how did you come to that place in your work and just in your in your career progression where you decided I do have legs to stand on and I don't care what you think? How did that happen for you? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, obviously having worked for for clients that, you know, would generate protests or boycotts or backlash was maybe a, a, an exposure to it that I wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm -hmm. But it was always interesting, you know, at American Apparel, there'd be some massive controversy on the internet. And then, you know, you'd look at this, the sales over the weekend and they'd, they'd have stayed the same or gone up. And then you realized, oh, wait, there's kind of this echo chamber out there, this kind of 
it's so easy to talk about things that you're um, upset about on the internet, but it doesn't necessarily follow that it actually changes people's behavior in any real way. Mm. And so you, you sort of realize that there's kind of this professional wrestling going on about, you know, sort of making everyone seem upset or that everything's a crisis. And, and then you realize that that's, that's not exactly how it's going. And so I think that 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 helped me with a little bit. And then also, yeah, as you as you get more confident in what you do and you do more of it, you realize I, I was never making this for everyone. Um, I, I'm making this for who my audience is. I'm, I'm making it for what I'm trying to express here. It's not unreasonable that some people would object to that. And I mean, the Stokes would talk about this, too. It's it's a. The idea that you can control other people's opinions or that it's even admirable to get everyone to like you or that that's a worthwhile pursuit is is not the best use of anyone's time. Mm, yeah. You've developed this this personal philosophy at, it seems, a really young age. I, I don't know exactly how old you are. I'm not going to ask. I think that we're more <laughs> or less contemporaries. Um, but I kind of think that to to get to a place where you have... Uh, a well buttressed personal philosophy. Something had to happen. What was what was the crucible for you? Why did you turn to philosophy? What made you start looking? Yeah, I I, I don't know exactly. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a it's a reasonable inference that most people are not operating by any sense of philosophy, either religiously, spiritually, you know, academically, whatever. They're, they're just kind of winging it, and I think that's why so many people end up either being people that they'd rather not be or ending up very far from where they'd like to be career-wise or personality-wise or character-wise. Mm-hmm. And and so I think a, ph- a philosophy is sort of this guiding framework that helps you operate in life. Um, I, I've heard sort of stoicism expressed as an operating system, and I, I think that's an interesting metaphor Um if it's not the operating system, what is your operating system? And I'm not sure most people have an answer to that. Hey guys, it's Ben. We're taking a quick break from Caitlin and Ryan Holiday to hear from one of you. This is Kyle talking about how reading can be easier than it seems and how it helps him with the big questions in life. Hey guys, I just want you to know how glad I am when I found Blinkist. And of course, your podcast. It really helped me to expand my understanding of this existence while floating in this moist rock called home. I really hate reading back then, but as of now, I've already finished 180 plus blinks and 9 books on my Kindle. Well, that's something I'm really proud of. Keep up the good work, guys. Bye. Thanks, Kyle. And we'd love to hear from more of you. Let us know what you've learned, or how you learn, or something you learned was easier or simpler than you initially thought it was. Send us your voice. Just record a voice memo and email it to us at podcast at Blinkist.com. Okay, let's get back to the interview with Caitlin and Ryan Holiday. I was reading a blog post of yours this morning. Um, about, well, it starts with Churchill. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about what a personal platform is and why it's important? 
Yeah. If if you think about how the media environment used to work, it was that there were a handful of outlets who had distribution or access to the public, right? So uh, if you wanted to reach an audience, you had to get access to that distribution. Well, to a large degree, that has fallen away. There's unlimited points of access to the internet, uh, mobile phones, uh, social media, uh, all these different things. So uh, what, what I what I talk about is that everyone wants to have a platform when they have something they want to say or release, but they don't do the work to develop that platform in advance. So the story I tell about Churchill is that, and most people don't know this, but Churchill is driven from political advice after the First World War. Um, and and as Nazism begins to rise in Germany, uh, he's a marginal political figure. He, he has no access to the levers of power in, inside Britain. Um, and so he builds a basically an international platform as a speaker and as a writer. He takes to radio. He's actually more popular in America than he is in his own country. Um, you know, you can go back and you can read these articles that Winston Churchill wrote in like Ladies Home Journal and, uh, <laughs> you know, all these different outlets. And he built up an enormous fan base, a platform. And I think this is increasingly valuable in our in our own time. You know, um, let's say you're a, a rock band right now. You know, you're not going to get played on the radio. You're not going to get played on MTV. How are you going to get your music out? You You have to have access to rock music fans because everything is so fractured that if you didn't do the work to develop an email list or to develop relationships with influencers, you're not going to have any way to tell people, hey, I made this thing and I want you to hear about it. And so I think this is true across all different industries. If you don't have access to people, your message will die of starvation because you you can't get your message out. Mm. So how do people how do they build a platform if you are writing a book or yeah. releasing an album what's your recommendation where do people start well you know the obviously the easiest way is social media but i i tend to find that these are the most fragile of platforms you know it's like you think about the 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 people who built huge huge audiences on myspace right where where is that now or uh you know twitter used to have very high engagement and now it has very low engagement I think ideally you want to build your audience as direct as possible, right? Like we're, you know, we're talking on this podcast right now and probably the vast majority of people are going to listen to it through iTunes. But what if Apple decides to stop supporting podcasts and then how do you have access to those same people? So um, it's, I think the first step of a platform is capturing as direct a link as possible between you and the people who like what you do. At the end of the day, it, it, it's about making a list of people who you can contact. And 50 years ago, that would have been a, a literal mailing list. And then more recently, it was an email list. And now it's uh, subscribers or followers or fans. You know, the words are always going to be changing, but you've got to have access to people or you don't have a platform. Mm -hmm. What do you think is the relationship between having a personal platform and being a personality? Is there a connection there? I, I suppose. I mean, I, I don't. I don't necessarily know. Are you? Do you use the word personality in a positive sense or in a negative sense? What, what do you mean by that? I don't think it matters. I mean, I was. I was specifically thinking about Tucker Max just now, actually, and I wouldn't say positive or negative. I used to read him in college and think he was terrible but funny. Um, yeah. But do you do you think that in order to have a successful personal platform? Does a creator have to be a big, huge personality, or or can they just produce decent work? I, I don't I don't think so. I, I would say uh, producing decent work 
is a hard sell in 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 2017 and i don't mean like decent as in decent or indecent i mean decent as in middle of the road mm. to to build a platform or a brand i think you have to be excellent right you have to, and and excellent is going to be relative in different fields mm. uh, to different audiences but it's really hard to make a living being just pretty good mm. um so I think what we we tend to care about the personalities of the people who who are consistently making good enough stuff for us to care about these things. So I, I guess not making a judgment on quality, but it, it's very hard to be average and build a platform because mm-hmm. why would I subscribe or pay or request to receive everything that you do if I didn't think you made really great stuff? totally fair contention. Right. Why would you? It seems to me, though, that we have this, the attention economy now. And in order to get eyeballs on on content, people, outlets, brands need to be ever more controversial. Um, yes. When you advise clients, do you have a moral north? Are there just things you won't do? Yeah, of, co- of course. I, I, I wouldn't necessarily go like, here are the list of the 10 things I refuse to do. But, you know, I wrote this book about media manipulation that was supposed to be a book about why media manipulation is bad and how it can be misused. I'll tell you, it's very alarming to hear that most of the notorious people in the alt-right have read or have not only read the book, but many of them sort of consider it a Bible. Wow. Um, the truth is these tools are are indifferent, right? The, the tools are neither good nor bad. Um, it's it's how we use them. Mm-hmm. So that's that's obviously not something that I support, something that I want to see happen. Mm. Um, but I, I think your point is is a good one in that when it's so noisy, it's hard to break through that noise, um, especially if what you do is quiet. So when, when I do sit down and I, I look at, at someone's work or someone's trying to develop a personality or a brand or whatever, what I try to go is, okay, look, what is the most interesting thing here? Or what's the most unusual or unique part of what you do? And let's lean into that, at least at the beginning, so we can stand out. And then once we've stood out, then we can can round out the, the, the offering a little bit more. Uh, what I think one of the still it's probably one of the best selling business books of all time. There's this wonderful book called Blue Ocean Strategy, mm-hmm. um, and and it's basically saying like, look, you want to avoid competition. You want to go where there's like sort of fresh blue water, um, and that's that's how I would think about it with a brand or a personality or whatever you're doing. Curves, which is one of the the examples in that book, um, Curves didn't try to compete with 24 Hour Fitness or Planet Fitness or any of these other gyms. They said, what's a market that's not being served? Let's little old ladies, uh, you know, uh, let's go there. And and so it's a carving out a unique space for yourself is really important. Mm-hmm. Have you worked with brands or personalities who have carved out that niche and then want to, I don't know, claim some other niches or go a little bit broader? What do you do once you've developed a brand around one niche? Yeah, I mean, look, my own career went this way, right? My first book was a marketing book. Um, uh, obviously, there that that's a very sort of 
established market in the in in the book space with a lot of prospective readers. And you know, I got a pretty big advance for my first book, uh, and it did okay. And then for my next book, when I said to my publisher, "Look, I don't want to be a marketing guru. That's not what I'm interested in. Uh, I want to write about." you know, an obscure school of ancient philosophy, they were not exactly excited about it. <laughs> um, but I'd already developed, to a certain degree, I developed fans for that kind of writing. So I knew I wasn't, you know, just totally guessing that people might like this. I did know that. Um, I And I built up a big enough fan base on the marketing side that I knew, hey, at least a percentage of these people are going to like what I'm doing. Uh, so, so I know it is possible to round that out. I think what you find is if you make really good stuff and you have that distribution, you, you should be able to make it work. Um, and then it's not that hard to have multiple tracks. You know, I think that was a, a thing that, that surprised me a little bit. It's like, oh, I can write marketing books and my marketing fans will buy them. And uh, I can write philosophy books and my more general fans can buy those. I think one of the things you want to be cognizant of is that you're not trying to push the wrong product on the wrong person. So as long as I'm not trying to get my philosophy fans to buy this marketing book and I'm not trying to get the marketing people to buy a philosophy book that they're not interested in and I'm just focusing on where those two overlap, then I'm good. Mm-hmm. I have I've also worked in marketing for a while, just in various roles. And I always say that yeah. the, the core competency at the heart of a, somebody who can be good at marketing is that you have to kind of be an optimist and okay. be willing to to look for the good in whatever you're trying to sell or spin. Yes. What what is the, the, the core competency for someone who can be good at strategy? That's a that's a good question. I would definitely agree with your assessment of marketing. If you don't believe in the product, it's very hard to be a good marketer of it. And I would say my my biggest successes as a marketer were on the best products and probably where I did the least amount of work. When when the person has written an amazing book that f- fills a, a very real and compelling need to a very obvious audience, my job as a marketer is almost just to get out of the way. It's to go, "Hey, check this out," mm-hmm. you know, versus if someone has has made an offering that's complicated or hard to understand, or maybe uh, that 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 has a great promise but doesn't fully deliver on that promise, then as a marketer, I, that's where I have to really sort of go to bat and you know sort of beg and plead and borrow and steal to to get people on board with it. Um, I feel like there are very few new strategies. Most strategies are just repurposed old strategies in a new context. So I think an understanding of history is very important. Um, an ability to see a bigger picture is really important. And then, um, you know, knowing the right strategy and then convincing people to get on board with said strategy are very different things. So I think a strategist has to be a good communicator as well. So, I mean, I, I, I can't really talk about the specifics, but I had, I had a, a session with a client on Friday and we sort of talked about this idea and we're all very excited about it. I think it's a great idea, but then actually convincing this person to do it and, and to do it right is much harder than brainstorming the idea in a conference room. Oh, totally. And that's true with marketing as well. You know, it's like you could have this great idea. And then by the time the the lawyers have gotten to it, it's been stripped of any of the reason for doing the idea uh, at all. And so that that's the depressing part. So depressing. Um, 
before you were good at what you do, where did, what did you screw up doing? This comes from, I watched you on a London Real interview, and you said that one of the things that we need to get better at is saying, I don't know about that. And how do you live with that? How, what do you do when you don't know about something? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the interesting things about being a, you know, a somewhat public figure at whatever level that I'm doing it at is like, you're at, in this exchange, for instance, you're asking me questions and I'm expected to answer. Mm -hmm. That's how an interview goes. But I've just noticed you can pick up a nasty habit from that, which is that even if you don't have an answer, you just make one up. And, and really, uh, the I don't know, or I'm not sure, uh, or I'm going to try to figure that out. That's something I, I deliberately try to practice now is like refraining from having a conclusion just yet. Like I want to wait and see that that's something I've, I, I don't think comes naturally to me. I'm not sure if it comes naturally to other people, but it's something I've, I've certainly tried to work on more and, and something that as I've become successful, I've noticed is actually harder to do. Mm. So that's why I work on it. Yeah, I, I don't think that in general, people do well with uncertainty, especially not when you're supposed to be the expert and you're put on the spot, you want to have a facile answer. Yeah. How how have you cultivated it for yourself? Like, do you just, are you in a conversation, you go, okay, Ryan, slow down <laughs> and want to think yeah. about it more? Like, what have you been doing to make sure that you can nurture that habit in yourself? Yeah, that that's a big part of it. And and being comfortable saying, I don't know. It's like, a. I think we tend to see it as a weakness, but it's not. And then I would say the other thing is like, uh, I've, I've tried to just say less generally. Uh, <laughs> there's a line I like from William Tecumseh Sherman where he's saying, never give reasons for why you think what you think, because the reasons can change. Mm. Um and so it's just like uh, the the less you say, the more options you have. Mm. And so um, from a social media standpoint, I, I think realizing that just made me go like, oh, wait, there's really there's very little upside for me in sort of doing my thinking out loud here. Like if there's a chance that I'm going to change this opinion in a month, why would I put it on record now? Mm hmm. Hey, I'm Holger. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Blinkist. I'm here at our headquarters in Berlin. And one thing I learned that was easier than I initially thought it was, was to learn another language, to be specific, Spanish. Um, when I was in school, or in German schools, a lot of times you only uh, learn one language, which is English. And then in university, at some point I said, I want to study abroad in another country and I really want to learn another language. But I kind of was afraid of, of doing so. And uh, but then kind of faced my fears, started to learn Spanish, learned it quite well and moved to Mexico for one year. And there I really got fluent in, in no time because if you're surrounded by people who speak another language, it's really not as hard to grasp another language and then speak fluently. Um, I really did want to talk to you about books because you obviously have such okay. a strong relationship with them. Can you just talk to me about, about your relationship with reading? Uh, well, I do it a lot. That would be the, probably the first uh, characterization of the, of the relationship. I, I have a quote in my book, Ego is the Enemy, from Bismarck, where he's saying, you know, any fool can learn by experience. I prefer to learn by the experiences of others. Mm -hmm. I think that's sort of the motto that I've tried to live my life by. And I think if I've had any early success. It's, it's 
been a result of that model. Have you ever um, run into any problems because you thought you knew something from reading about it and then you didn't? I mean, I, I'm sure I'm sure there has been instances where I had I thought I had an understanding and it turned out my understanding was only partial or was superficial. Mm-hmm. But I, I guess I just mean is like we have, you know, we have about 5,000 years of stories and myths. And so it's like, why would you not avail yourself of that you know you read something like history of the peloponnesian war and it's this sort of epic it's like the first it's the first or it's the second basically history book ever written and contained within it is essentially everything that is happening right now uh, and everything that will be happening in a hundred years and maybe instead of using uh you know wooden ships we'll be using spaceships or you know the 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 names and the places and the the things change, but the fundamental themes never do. And so I I think as a reader, my my goal is to learn, either to learn or to be exposed to as many things as possible to eliminate as much painful trial and error as possible. Mm -hmm. So you kind of go in knowing that that's your your sort of philosophical reading goal. Um, Yeah. What I notice about your books is that you do you do do a tremendous amount of historical research and you cite plenty of examples. There are quotes everywhere. But what is what is uniquely yours? What do you want to be remembered for in your writing? I, I think what I'm interested in and why my books have worked is that I'm making connections between things that save people a lot of time. So mm. I think one of the things that I'm sort of doing with my books is is taking the, a huge swath of, of history or or literature or philosophy or whatever it is and reducing it to a set of principles or lessons about a very specific topic. And mm. so th- that I, I think I'm really good at research and I think I'm really good at making connections and uh, I think I'm providing a service for people. Yeah. And that's like the essence of creativity too, I guess. It's it's finding new ways to make connections between old things that are novel and impactful. I, I There's this quote, I'm forgetting what it is exactly, but it's sort of like uh, the job of a great new book is to make you love old truths. Mm. And and I, I sort of feel like my job is to capture some of these timeless lessons, maybe even some of the ones we were talking about earlier in this podcast, and and illustrate them in a way that makes people consider them and and hopefully makes it stick with them. Hmm. What old truth do you love? Uh, I I love I love many 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 old truths. Well, what's um, what's one that comes to mind? I'm just curious. In a, in a more religious time and in a more uncertain time we thought about death all the time, right? Um there's a whole f- genre of art called vanitas which was just like pictures of skulls basically. Um so an, an old truth I've been thinking a lot about and talking about, and uh, I even made like a physical reminder that I carry around with me, but just this idea of memento mori, like remembering that you're mortal and that you have a, a very small amount of time on this planet and that instead of that being scary, it's actually liberating and it should give you a sense of urgency about what you do. Um, that's such an That's such an obvious truth, but I don't think anyone could argue that it's uh, – overly discussed yeah you know we we have that exercise you go oh like did you hear so and so got cancer what would i do if i got cancer and Mm. it's like 
you already do have a fatal diagnosis. Like you <laughs> living. <laughs> when you, yeah. When you were, when you were born, the doctor could have said with a hundred percent certainty that this child is going to die. It could die tomorrow. It could die 87 years from that moment, but we're all going to die. Mm. And yet this central, arguably the most important fact about our existence is regularly, if not forgotten, deliberately suppressed. Yeah. Um, on that note, yeah. what, uh, what are you reading lately? Um, uh, I'm reading uh, this book called The General in His Labyrinth by Gabriela Garcia, Garcia oh, Marquez. Marquez. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which I thought was really interesting. I, I, I was in Colombia um, maybe like two weeks ago and I ran in this park it's called Simon Bolivar Park. And mm-hmm. I, I've seen, uh, I've obviously seen statues of him. I think there's one in New York City. Um, and I realized I have no idea who this human being is. Like one of the most famous people in the continent directly below ours. And I know nothing about him. I never learned about him in school. I've never read an article about him. So I started there and then it'll be sort of the the hopefully the beginning of a long journey into finding out who this extraordinary individual was. Mm. I like how curious you are about everything and that you decide that you're going to follow up on it once you get curious about something. That seems like an important thing to cultivate too. Well, I think one of the ways you make connections is that like if, if I just read this book and then I moved on to a different fiction book about a different topic, I don't think you're you're not understanding the essence of what happened or who was involved. So I like to, you know, if I, you know, I read one book about the civil war five or six years ago, and now I'm probably on 20 or 30. And so it's, I I understand the people, I understand this author's take. I think one of the things that I try to cultivate as a reader is to ultimately know so much about a topic that I can tell whether the author is right or not. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I realized at some point it was very rare that I ever disagreed with the people I was reading about. Mm-hmm. You know, like I ever disagreed with the author. And that made me think that maybe my understanding of the topic was too superficial mm-hmm. and that I wasn't challenging myself. So, yeah, I, I try to I, – I call it swarming. I sort of try to swarm around a general topic and, and sort of read everything about it and then – then once you understand it really deeply, then you can sort of analogize from that topic and you can know what's important or not. You know, you can know when you're watching the news and, you know, they go, oh, this is just like right before World War II. You know, you mm. can know if that's true or not. Right. Yeah. It seems like one of the things that we keep coming back to in the course of this conversation is is the importance of looking deeper and getting comfortable with asking the big questions. Do you have books that you would recommend someone read if they wanted to get better at asking the big questions or or better at being comfortable with that process? Yeah, yeah, that that is a good question. Um, one of my favorite books is by a French philosopher named uh, Pierre Hadot. It's called Philosophy as a Way of Life. And his, his basic contention is that we think of Aristotle or, you know, Marcus Aurelius or, or, or any of the, or Epicurus as these philosophers who are trying to like create this systemic explanation of the universe, because that's what we see philosophers at, you know, Harvard or Yale doing. It's like, oh, this person has this complicated explanation for this or that when really they were self-help sounds sort of dismissive, but really they were just trying to help people with problems. Um, if you take the Stoics, if you take Seneca or Epictetus, often like a student asks so-and-so a question 
And then here was their answer. They're, they're basically bits of advice on how to live. And ancient philosophy was, was in the past mostly designed about answering that question, like how do I live and how do I live well? And so I think focusing on books that guide you towards that is, is, is very, very important. Hmm. Uh, sort of on the note of how do I live and how do I live well, I was also looking at your Instagram. I did, I did a thorough um, okay. a, a thorough, a thorough search on all of your uh, social media profiles. Um, I saw this lovely new letterpress print from the Daily Stoic that you posted, and it says, yeah. waste no more time arguing what a good man should be, be one. Um, yes. What, is that, what does that mean to you? How, how do you enact that? And I mean, it doesn't have to be about being a man, quote unquote. It means being a good person. What, is, what does that yes. look like? Well, I think, I think what the Stoics are saying is that the philosophy wasn't this thing that you do in a classroom. It's supposed to be what you do in life. So like it, it was interesting, right? That's the quote, uh, waste no more time arguing what a good man is like, be one. And then, you know, every once in a while I'll get an email and they go, why does it say man? Why not? Every, you know, and it's like, this is actually exactly what he's talking about, that like we would rather in our culture have sort of semantic debates about what does this word mean or is this the fairest way to say that instead of understanding what the obvious point was when he was making it 2000 years ago and then acting on said point. So, um, well, I think I, there's I, something to be said for semantics and fairness as well. No, of, of, of course. But my point is that, uh, you could not pick in a more ironic instance to do that than, than in this specific one, which is that he's saying that we, we tend to spend far too much of our lives arguing and talking about things theoretically rather than actually doing them. So, mm. you know, the, the most important discipline in stoicism is a discipline of action. Mm -hmm. So, what are you what are you doing with this thing that you're studying? What is the person that you're that you you ultimately end up being? What are you doing in the in the moment? There was a just I think a month and a half ago, uh, a French philosopher, her field of study was risk. Mm -hmm. She was saying that uh, taking risks is what makes life worth living. Um, and uh, she was on the vacation. She was on vacation uh, on the beach, and she saw a child drowning. It was a ch I think it was a child of a friend. And she she ran out into the water to to save the child. I think she did save the child, but she ended up drowning oh. um, and and dying. But to me, that's the and I don't mean to be flip about it, but that's the ultimate philosophical act, right? Writing her books about uh, risk taking. Um, is only the first step. And the second step, and I think she would have agreed with this, is do you put the philosophy into action? Hey, there's a child who needs me. Am I going to act on my principles in this moment or not? Yeah. Again, to go back to how do I live and how do I live well, what, um, given all of the research you've done, given your, your vast amount of reading, given what you, you try to put into practice every day, what, do you, what would you tell someone if they wanted to live better? Wow. Um, I'd probably point them to, to writing you know, much, much better than my own or that I could articulate. But I think, I think this idea of the, the present moment is, is all that you're at least guaranteed in life, right? So many of us are either dwelling on the past or anticipating and thinking about the future. Meanwhile, the, the present moment, what are you going to do right now? How could you live better right this second or do the, the thing that you know is right in the second would obviously be a, 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 a big part. Um, 
I would probably urge them to think about this sort of stoic concept of making a big distinction between what you control and what you don't control. And when you make that distinction and you focus your energy entirely on the things that you do control, you find that you have incredible amounts of energy that you were previously wasting. And and then, uh, you know, sort of how can you see beyond past or through the sort of petty either squabbles or temptations or obsessions of other people, you know, the people that want to be famous or the people that want to be, you know, extraordinarily wealthy or the people that are chasing this high or that high. Um, I think one of the ways that you live better is, is by sort of making the distinction between what's essential and what's inessential. Um, And then again, focusing on those, those things that really matter to you. And I think obviously more universally. Mm -hmm. Mm. Great. Thank you so much. This has been such a right. such a great conversation. Have a good day. All right, awesome. Take care. Welcome to the bookend, where we end with books. Hi there, from bookend number two for season two of Simplify. Cool. That was a really surprising interview with Ryan Holiday. Yeah. I'm, I'm really impressed. The guy's awesome. He really was. We had a great conversation. Yeah. Yeah. He and I had a lot of fun and he was great to talk to. And I, I mean, you know, I was kind of nervous about this one. It was, it was a challenge to prepare for. So it was a couple of weeks back, but what really stuck out to you? I mean, what, what do you remember now about, about that conversation with Ryan? Yeah. Well, I think that really, and this sounds very, very obvious, I know, but bear with me. It's this idea that we can bring our passions alongside a profession and it doesn't dilute a personal brand or personal integrity. I had, as I just said, I had a, a challenging time preparing for this interview because I wasn't sure if I wanted to talk with Ryan as a marketer or as a student of philosophy or something else entirely. And it turns out that we did both because he is both. And I think that's really important. You mean like to have a personal philosophy in your marketing or? Well, I mean, I think that's, you know, integrity is important. Yes. But um, I mean that we get caught up sometimes in believing that we have to be one thing, that we must focus on one thing, that we have to consistently distribute only one message or it means that we lack integrity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's not necessarily true. You can be somebody who does marketing for a living and also believes very, very passionately in the importance of something as esoteric as Stoic philosophy. Right. Right. And bring, you know some unity to that in your professional life yeah i mean yeah and i also just like how deeply he thought about how to read yeah yeah so speaking of reading let's uh i'm curious to hear what kind of book list we can make for people indeed uh yeah i've got a couple for you so ready hit me first one is bird by bird by anne lamott this one is actually on ryan's list of books to base your life on which is on his blog um Bird by Bird is about the art of writing, but it's also about life in general, how to deal with problems, temptations, opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. And Lamont writes it from her own perspective, so it's her own advice on writing and on life and her own approaches. But there are also some nice anecdotes. So um, it's mostly about appreciating life's larger obstacles and small, small gifts. It's interesting that it's on his list. I would have thought that it was more of that he would pick something like military history. Oh, but Ben, there's more. Okay, so what's the second one? The second one is The 48 Laws of Power by Robert Greene. So this one is a classic, and it's also by one of Ryan's mentors. Ryan met Greene when he was 19, and Greene really shaped his trajectory. This book is on power and strategy, and Ryan says it is required reading for anybody who's trying to accomplish pretty much anything in life. This is the primer on what power is, how to get it, and how to keep it. Yeah, I 
I, I also like Robert Greene. And it's, he, he, I can see them being connected because um, Greene is really into these deep research projects. I did my own little bit of research and went onto Wikipedia. What uh, did you find, Ben? <laughs> Tell the um, class. <laughs> he, Robert Greene wrote a book with uh, the rapper 50 Cent. Remember what? him? What? Yeah. And uh, it's called The 50th Law. <laughs> And wait, 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 where's 49? The, it's a, it's, it's a semi-autobiographical account of 50 Cent's rise through, like, as a hustler and as a musician. Um, but what I really like about it is, it is it features anecdotes, according to the website, with fe- people like Abraham Lincoln. Check out this list. Abraham Lincoln, Sun Tzu, Socrates, Napoleon, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. Yeah, it's a diverse list. But that also <laughs> kind of ties into Ryan's thing of like read broadly and, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. extract truth. Read broadly and look at history. Yeah, I yeah. like read broadly, extract truth. Okay, so we have Anne Lamont, Robert Greene. Mm-hmm. Do we have another one? Yeah, last one uh, is actually Ryan's book, The Obstacle is the Way. So this is a really nice light intro to Stoic philosophy, basically, and it does exactly what Ryan talks about in the interview. It brings the main tenets of Stoic teachings to the fore through sharing stories of historical figures. Uh, There are also lots of great quotes from Stoic thinkers in here. So it's a nice book to read to reorient yourself in terms of what it means to be impeded, what it means to set yourself free, and how to treat obstacles as your friends, not your enemies. Yeah, we never, like, we didn't go into that much about Stoicism in this episode. Mm-hmm. But a little teaser about the kind of modern Stoicism that Holiday is into is a lot about dealing with obstacles mm-hmm. and a lot about, like, the logic of perseverance. Yeah. And um, and about how perspective shifts are everything. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. well, that's a great book list. Um, Thanks, Ben. Should we go? <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's give credit to the people who made this podcast. Because let's do it. it's always more than just me and you. Definitely. Thanks to everybody for listening to another episode of Simplify. This episode was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, Caitlin Schiller. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. Uh, And Odie Constantino, who doesn't carry a wallet. Oh, more fun facts. All right. Well, if you enjoyed this episode or feel you learned something, consider sending it on to someone else who you think might like it, too. Um, thanks to everyone who's given us readings and reviews in Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Castycast, etc., etc., Pocketcast, everybody who has ever said a nice thing about Simplify. <laughs> Thank you, guys. It means a lot to us. And if you haven't done that yet, um, maybe take a second to do it. We really appreciate it. Right. And another quick reminder that we're on Twitter. I'm at B-S-T-O. I'm at Caitlin Schiller. So- C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-E-H-I-L-L-E-R. Whoa. Schiller. No, <laughs> I'm not going to cheer now. <laughs> that was really good. But, um... I mean, Caitlin and I work at Blinkist, and Simplify is made by the in-house audio team who make the Blinkist audio also. So we just want to remind you guys, Blinkist is a learning app that takes the world's best-selling nonfiction books and condenses them into focused little capsules of audio and text that you can listen to or read in just 15 minutes. Awesome. Right, and we made another voucher code so you can you can try it out for 14 days. So you can go to Blinkist.com slash friends and type in this episode's very special voucher code, which is... Vanitas. Indeed. V-A-N-I-T-A-S. Cool. You can email me and Ben at podcast at Blinkist.com if you want to let us know about your personal philosophy or anything else, really. Right. And you heard probably in these episodes that we're um, including your voices in the middle of some of the interviews, which has been really fun to hear from you. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you can record yourself answering Caitlin's favorite question. Which is? Which is. I'm going to try it. Do it. What have you learned was easier than you initially thought it was? Yes. Perfect. 
and it could be about anything. It doesn't have to relate to this episode or marketing or stoicism. Mm-hmm. It could be about anything. And just email the audio file to us at podcast.blingus.com and we'll try and get your voice into the podcast. Yeah, it's as simple as firing up your voice memo app on your phone and just recording us a quick message. So, Cool. Then we'll be back next week again with another episode of the second season of Simplify. So in the meantime, stay awesome. This is Ben and Caitlin checking out. Checking out. See ya.